Hey, this is Jesse. Just a little apology to start off episode three. We experimented with some new elements in this episode and ended up having some issues with Billy's audio. It's still very listenable, and even where the fidelity falters, the caliber of Billy's character and the power of his prophecy surface unscathed by the static, I assure you. And by minute four, his audio is sounding a lot better. Our commitment moving forward, both to ourselves and to you, is to ensure that every episode we make new mistakes. We also want to thank everyone who is sharing this around, giving it ratings, and sending us feedback. It's all helping a lot. Here's episode three. That's it. <laughs> yes. There it is. Uh, oh my god. Billy. What's up, nice bro? job, man. Thank you. Nice Thank job you. on the intro music. For those who are unaware, every week uh one of us takes the lead in in music and content. And this week uh it was Billy. Yes. Dropping the beat and dropping the theme. That's right. And this week we're doing comedian living legend, if you ask me, Dave Chappelle. Who is Dave Chappelle? What does he represent, Jesse? I consider him to be the GOAT of comedy. And I want to throw that down. I know that could be controversial. I want to throw that gambit down from the top so we can kind of break it down there. Just Actually, raise the stakes right off me? the bat. Okay. Right off the bat, yo. And mm. I think there's two parts. Like the who, who is Dave Chappelle is like an easy thing. We can all kind of just look at his personal history, his professional history, his jokes, his public his public utterances and, and his career choices. The second part, the what does he represent part, is uh, a bit more nuanced. And I think it, it depends on the viewer, depends on the listener. And so you can have mm -hmm. a ton of different varied interpretations of who Dave Chappelle is. And, you know, he's been in the game since the early 90s. So it's, it's a great conversation. It's fertile ground for some, um, some discussion. And who better to have it with than my man, Jesse. So GOAT stands for greatest of all time. And it's a conversation that has had regularly in the sports world particularly in basketball in the era of LeBron James uh, being compared to Michael Jordan. And it's a, it's a fiery debate. And I think when it comes to comedy, it gets even more complex because in a basketball game, for example, I mean, there's no question like Jordan won the game when he hit that shot. You know, it's like the ball went in the net. We can confirm the ball went in the net. Whereas in comedy, it's like there's a whole debate on whether or not the ball went in the net in the first place. So you're already a whole step removed from in, in terms of just can you talk about this is like objectively the best of all time, you know? Um, so anyways, you can't do, all that you can't to say, do objectively, even in sports though, it's never, objective, no, no, no. Yeah. Right? Objective, objectively was the wrong word. I'm just saying it's like even more subjective. Sure. Like it, it's objective that the ball went in the net, like Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, the communications series talks about this. Like one of the attractions of the sports page in the newspaper is it's like the only page, you know, they're telling you the truth always. It's uh -huh. like in the sense that, like, you know, LeBron James definitely did score 36 points last night. He definitely did hit 12 of 18 shots. It could be, like, easily confirmed, and you know they're not lying to you about that. Whereas, comedy like, the arts page, comedy doesn't have that. Everything It's all subjective, down to the core. Chappelle, man, Chappelle is, is, is unique in so many ways. And one of the things that makes Chappelle so unique is that he has the best-selling DVD of all time, right? So, or the best-selling TV DVD. So the best-selling series DVD of all time which is the last era in which like you had to physically own the thing to be able to watch it. 
And so you know if you owned a DVD, if you spent that money to get a DVD, you watched it more than once. We watched that shit over and over again in a way that, that you just would never do today, even with your favorite comedian or your favorite artist, you know? I'm from a time that I didn't even used to know who was on the phone until I answered the shit. I remember I was 12 years old and the teacher wheeled a television set into the classroom. You remember these things? And she turned it on to one of three channels and, and she said, class, the space shuttle is taking off and we're all gonna watch it take off. Man, that shit was going great for like three to five minutes. It fucking exploded. Right on television, everybody on board, dead, immediately presumed dead. For a guy your age wouldn't even know the pain because in your generation, it's like the space shuttle blows up every fucking day. How can you care about anything when you know every goddamn thing? I'm getting over one cop shooting, and then another one happens, and then another one happens, and another one happens. I'm crying about Paris, and then Brussels happens. I can't keep track of all this shit, so you just give the fuck up. I used to watch a fucking cartoon when I was growing up called Care Bears. It was about a fucking group of teddy bear people. They were like teddy bears, but they were like people, and they were all different colors, and they all fucking just walked around caring. They cared about each other and everything else. And when shit got real bad, as nice as those teddy bears were, they didn't get mean faces. They got determined. Hmm. And the leader would say, come on, guys. It's time for the Care Bear Stare. Remember that shit? And them little teddy bears would lock arms and stare at the problem. And I'm not even bullshitting. Actual love would shoot out of their chest and would dispel anything that was fucked up. And when we grew up, we wanted to be like those babies. And then we got our hearts broken. So we found out that life wasn't gonna let us do that. And that it's impossible to shoot love out of your chest. However, I have shot love onto somebody's chest before. <laughs> so here's what I love about that. Dave Chappelle, in that one clip, he, he touches on so many important things. There's an intergenerational divide that he touches on. There's a technological divide. Uh, the ways technology has changed us as a society, as a species. Uh, the internet, information overload, processing trauma and violence and the normalization of, of, of violence through just knowing that it exists all over the place all the time. He talks about the Care Bears. He comments on the disappointment that we all eventually feel when you grow up and you realize how flawed and unfair things are and how limited we are in our capacity to fix the shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then he ends it with ejaculating on someone's chest. You know what I mean? All this like highbrow, interesting commentary followed with, with that. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite musical artists ever. One day maybe we'll do a podcast about her, Lauren Hill, and this rhyme. And even after all my logic and my theory, I add a motherfucker so you ignorant niggas hear me. And mm. she's saying, look, I have this ability to weave dense, complicated, socio-political you know, observations. And I can also hit you with something to just kind of make you laugh or make you enjoy the music. And it doesn't have to be so deep. And I, and I love that. That's a rare talent. 
man, you, that was so so well summarized. Um, some of the many talents that that Dave Chappelle puts on display regularly beyond most of his contemporaries, or maybe all of them. And definitely the the layers you've mentioned, the idea to to work in multiple punchlines in the sense like like to to use a hip hop analogy, you know, like there's there's basic hip hop rhyming schemes, you know, where it's like a a b b a a b b, and you're you're just kind of rhyming that way. And there's more complex ones that have like internal rhymes within yes. the lines and blah 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 different things. So Dave Chappelle is working at that that higher level artistry, working in multiple layers, multiple punchlines, setting you up. Sometimes his setups, when you go back, you're like, it's like with a, with rap, you know, sometimes you just, you'll hear somebody will like mispronounce a word slightly mm-hmm. in on one line and it's because so that it will rhyme with the next line. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the equivalent of that in this one, if you're actually imagining the Care Bears as I was, because like Dave, I grew up watching the Care Bears and the Care Bears shoot love out of their bellies mm. as I remember it. Mm. So when he was like, they shoot love out of their chest. I was like, wait, what? Like he seems to have such a good recollection of the Care Bears, but then yes. no, they definitely shot it out of their bellies. Yes. And then you realize, right, okay, he's he's slightly like in the hip hop style, he's slightly mispronouncing that yeah. so that he can rhyme it at the end with with coming on somebody's chest. That's fantastic. Um, That's exactly right. You know, but you go with him because because he's got you wanting to laugh because he's he he's helping you exercise these really horrible things this is like gallows humor right so you're allowing yourself to laugh at things that are really sad like it's really really terrifying and sad that we can watch an unarmed person getting shot by a police officer and like you know uh be distracted at the same time you know be like looking at something else or or just kind of like oh another one that like desensitization that comes with our times uh, that he's getting at with this Care Bear thing creates such a desire to laugh and like a license to laugh to get that out. Like, I don't even fully understand. Do you understand it? Like the, the science of like why we want to, why we need to laugh at these things or like why that helps us? I don't know if I understand the science, but I think as we see more and more of it and it becomes so pervasive and we're hit with it all of the time, death and pain and suffering, uh, mm. you need a release. You can't just take in all this horrible stuff all the time. Uh, you need a release. You need to be able to talk to each other about it. And you need to be able to come up with positive ways of approaching it and ways of analyzing it. And laughter is, is just a powerful medicine. We all know that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and so Dave Chappelle is powerful to me because not every comedian has that lane. Not every comedian will even attempt to have that lane. You know, I love Jim Gaffigan, for instance. You know, the dude, he's funny. But he is, you know, he's consistently in the kind of I'm a dad and, and these are the weird things I notice, you know, in the ki- I go in the kitchen and my, you know, my, my kids are there and that's funny. But uh, this stuff is, is something else. And to find the humor and the irony in it and, and to do it uh, with so much poise and, uh, and make the point, I love that. The, the other thing about that clip for me is it, it definitely represents a little bit of what I see in Dave's journey as a professional. It's a, actually, well, it's, it's 20 years now since Killing Him Softly, right? It's 20 years since his big breakout stand-up. Mm. Mm. That was a guy who I really believe cared. And, I, and now I see, so it's kind of like the, the analogy for me is like the movie Moonlight, when you have this uh, vulnerable, sensitive teenager uh, who's really skinny. And then when they fast forward to him in the last act of the film, and he's jacked, and he doesn't give a shit, and he's tough. And... And that is da- like that like that is the difference between 2003 Dave and 2020 Dave for me is like 2020 Dave is like explicitly like you know what 
I used to give a shit and I ended up having to leave the game for 10 years and run away. Like it weighed on me too much to care that much. And, and now I'm almost going to celebrate my, I don't, yeah. He still cares, right? Do you not think or no? I think this is one of the big questions and it's, it's almost like not the most important question Mm. because you know, one of the things he does, um, and, and, and maybe I can show this later that I, that I think is the, the function that George Carlin did before him in the, in the comedian game was like represent the worst sides of ourselves on stage. Dave and George, like they both would go back and forth between making kind of like moral comments that were more explicitly or straight up, you know, like you should never like judge anybody for their identity or, you know, he'll say stuff like this, but he's also doing it as a setup to then go, but... Mm-hmm. Or like, mm-hmm. however, yeah. um, I'm about to do it, which is which is part of the humor, um, in the sense of like, okay, which one's the real Dave? Is is the real Dave the one who's saying, you know, everybody deserves respect, or is or is the real Dave the one who's kind of saying like, okay, you you guys are weird and you know, yuck, and you know, all this stuff. How about both though? I think the power in both Carlin and Dave and others in that cloth is that they are saying. It's complex. It's weird. We're weird. Even in his most recent stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the controversial like Sticks and Stones, he he's like posing questions, which is a way to kind of give himself cover, I think, in some ways. Like if he has a controversial view, it's like, well, just a thought, you know? Um, yeah. But the absolutes, the moral absolutes, I think are something we need to be mindful of and careful with. and And the idea that any of us has the answer to it and that we're perfect and that we're, you know, righteous all of the time, that we don't have thoughts, that we don't have biases. He's saying, yo, I have biases. You have biases. Come on, come on, admit it, you know, and let's talk about it and let's laugh at it. And through that, we can heal and whittle, whittle back to you and whittling, whittle those, um, whittle those biases down. Um, That's how I see it. And that's the big question, I guess, in, in the sense of by laying those biases out there. So this is, this is the reason why he left the Chappelle show, right? So like the, the big tension that was going on inside him at the time, when this, this famous episode 2006, where he walks away from $50 million and leaves the show and everybody else involved with it kind of left hanging and everybody, you know, says he's crazy and all this stuff. And I really suggest people watch his interview on Inside the Actors Studio when he comes back after that. And he talks about, you know, calling people crazy is is like the worst thing you can call somebody because it like it really diminishes them. And, and and it's like the laziest thing you can do because it's saying, I don't understand them. So I'm just going to label them this thing called crazy. And I'm not even going to make any attempt to understand where they're coming from. And then so then, you know, he gets into it and he actually says it really well in an interview with Oprah, too. He explains how he was doing a skit about race uh, on the show. And one of his jokes, he heard a white, it's not clear whether it's like an audience member or camera guy or something like this, um, laughed in a way. And he says, I know the difference between somebody laughing with me and somebody laughing at me. And that was laughing at me. Right. And, and so he showed this like, like real caring of realizing like, okay, when I do sketches about crack users, when I do sketches about, you know, portraying some of these biases that we have around race, in our heads or some of these stereotypes we have around race in our heads, I can, I can also be reinforcing them. Yeah. And, and giving them like a, 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 spo- a beloved spokesperson. I think his show straddled that line really dangerously. 
And mm. that was part of what made it so funny and iconic. He was saying things that people were awkward about. I saw an article from Tanahasi Coates uh, from years back where he critiqued Chappelle's skit on reparations. If you're just joining us, black people got their reparations checks today, and in short, all hell is broken loose. Oh, all the yeah. liquor stores and the chicken uh, places were sold out. Gold is way up. Diamonds are at their most expensive level ever. Catchphrase around here is certainly bling bling. Oil has dropped to a dollar fifty a barrel, while chicken shot to six hundred dollars a bucket. Amazing news there. I don't think that skit was one of his best skits, but it was. It was definitely one of those skits that made people. I mean, it just played deeply into all the stereotypes. I mean, that's that's just all it did, and it cheapened the campaign for reparations, according to Tanasi Coates. And I think there's perhaps some truth to that. I mean, this is complex, and I think. Maybe that skit was one of the skits that weighed on him more heavily than, than so many of the others because it was so, I think, the humor was there, but it wasn't. To me, I remember at the time I laughed, but I, I, you know, he has so much other material that I thought was great. And that might have been one of his misses, if you ask me. But he's, when, you're, when you're straddling that line so closely all the time, uh, that potential is always there, I think. It's like when you're that, when you're that big and you're reaching that diverse of an audience, mm -hmm. it's like unavoidable that every skit is like, going to do good and do harm, you know, at some level, like from my own experience, you know, I, when I went to university, I went, for, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a neighborhood that had a, a large um, ethnic diversity and I grew up around a lot of black people and then went to a university, which had like very few. And I, Chappelle show kind of came out around that transition. So I actually was able to see Chappelle show in, in where I went to high school and then Chappelle show at university. And I can say that, for example, this, the Tyrone skit was way more popular at my like almost all white university mm. um around this kids the, that hadn't the the crackhead is this a five o'clock free crack giveaway <laughs> the crackhead skit which you know that that is, is very similar to the anton character that damon wayans would play on in living color mm -hmm. um these these sketches like for me are some of the only ones in the Chappelle show that are lacking layers you know, like it's, it's very one layered. It's very just like uh, exaggerated version of, of what some people who use crack, you know, look like or act like. And when I think back on it, it was kind of shocking to realize like how that th those were the sketches that resonated above, above the other sketches, above Black Bush, above uh, even like the Charlie Murphy real Hollywood stories, which play with more with questions of like ego and so, along with all the humor. Some of these, the, the more layered and what I think like much more artistic and beautiful and hilarious bits that, that Chappelle show did, like these, these were the top ones. It was, like this Tyrone, I remember people like dressing up as Tyrone for Halloween. And uh, you know, you're talking about the, the chicken joints, you know, people when they get their reparations or going. I, I remember like growing up, like not really associating the, that whole like uh, chicken and watermelon thing, which he talks about in his stand-up. And then I remember at university, there was uh, this scandal because some guys dressed up as the Jamaican bobsled team and they, some white guys, and they, they, they painted their faces and they went in blackface. And then one of them had like a KFC bucket on his head. And I feel like these in some ways are kind of like post Chappelle show things. Like, I, I feel like, you know, like this, these, these stereotypes or these biases kind of, like filtered into that, came into that world through Chappelle in many ways. Sure. Um, like, I don't think I would have understood what the hell the chicken bucket was doing there, you know, gotcha, until then. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. What I think 
is important to notice about Dave, I think. I don't know him personally. I get the sense that this is a guy who does think deeply about what he's saying and his impact. I want to say that more times than not, Dave Chappelle offers us a layered, creative approach to to the things he's noticing. Um, but he also does have stuff that I don't know. I don't know if he's ever like publicly denounced a particular sketch or a particular set of jokes, but I'm sure there are things that he'll look back and go, ah. and he's currently looking back and go, I don't, I don't know if that's, that was so great and I use my platform in that way. And uh, I think that's that's well, something he would do and that's something he should do. And I think he's he's capable of that reflection, in my view, more than than some other people. And that's why like sometimes there's, you know, when he he makes this joke in one of his new stand-ups, uh, you know, where he says, he's talking about how there was um, a trans person who was devastated by one of his previous jokes, which gets a chuckle out of the audience. Like just him saying that, like this is where the whole laughing at them and versus laughing with them thing that he was so sensitive to in the early years when he was doing race jokes to the degree to which he was that he dropped 50 million dollars left it on the table abandoned his show and quit like an unprecedented move um had to do hinged around that concept right and now you know he just has to say so i had this trans fan was devastated when they heard my joke and the, he's already getting laughs from the room and and i feel like that's a sign the tone he speaks in and then the, the response he gets just at, just from just saying like those words is a sign that there's some laughing at going on. You know what I mean? And then he's, you know, he says, but I have a policy. Like I never feel bad about anything I say on stage, you know, like that's, and he gets a huge applause for that. The new Dave, the post social media Dave is, is kind of like developed this a bit of more of like the shock comedian thing is like, I'm just here to make you laugh and I don't care, you know, what you think. Uh, my humor does or says or or who it uh, stigmatizes or whatever like i'm not i'm not even listening yeah there's some of that there's some of that without question if i was a comedian with his platform i feel like i would make different choices i feel like i would i'm not there i don't quite know i'm not dave Chappelle, but i feel like i would make different choices i don't know if he's a you know you said shot comedian i think maybe he's moved in that direction but i guess I feel like there's something in there that's still really rather nuanced, bro. And if I could- Oh yeah, no, no. And let me just jump into another quick clip I have. I tell you, I've never had a problem with white people ever in my life, but full disclosure, the poor whites are my least favorites. <laughs> We've gotten a lot of trouble out of them. And I've never seen so many of them up close. I looked them right in their coal-smeared faces. <laughs> and to my surprise, you know what I didn't see? I didn't see one deplorable face in that group. I saw some angry faces and some determined faces, but they felt like decent folk. No, they did. In fact, I'm not even lying, and I didn't sound fucked up, but I felt sorry for them. I know the game now. I know that rich white people call poor white people trash. And the only reason I know that is because I made so much money last year, the rich whites told me they say it at a cocktail party. <laughs> and I'm not with that shit. And I stood with them in line, like all of us Americans are required to do in a democracy. Nobody skips the line to vote. And I listened to them. I listen to him say naive, poor white people things. 
man, Donald Trump's gonna go to Washington and he's gonna fight for us. I'm standing there thinking in my mind, you dumb motherfucker. You are poor. He's fighting for me. So yeah, I mean, look, the nuance in that, in that bit is crazy. I mean, you don't expect him to, to end up with the punchline where Donald Trump is an advocate for Dave Chappelle. Um, but through that, he really makes an interesting critique and commentary about class in America, mm -hmm. class alongside race. Um, and so, we, you know, that's huge and that's interesting. And he's one of the few comedians who can do that and do that well and make it funny. And, and I think, you know, he he was always doing that. that. That intersection of class and race is something that he danced around and educated a lot of us. Like, it's, I mean, there might even be some irony is that like the same, and it's not a criticism, it's just, just like an observation, is that like that, that in, intersectionality that's become kind of like a word uh, that's come to represent the solidarity between groups and the, trying to understand uh, the different forms of oppression and all that stuff is that like the, the same groups now that, that we, that we, that are criticizing, that have the critique of Chappelle. It's like he kind of started us out on that journey 20 years ago uh, of exploring intersectionality, you know, through his humor of, of talking about class and race. And I don't, I don't know if that's true of, you know, everybody or whatever, but it's definitely in my case, it's definitely part of my, um, Chappelle show was part of my, uh, process of coming to a better understanding of how these things intersect. You know, I remember his, his joke about, you know, being in a limo in the ghetto, trying to get some, trying to get some drugs and stuff like this. I mean, they could, there, there was, uh, <laughs> right. you know, buying, buying drugs from a baby. You remember there was, <laughs> there was like, yeah. in this Trump clip, he's playing off of like a, a bit of a misunderstanding about the Trump voter base, which is actually the, we found out that the average Trump voter is, is not necessarily poor or, you know, it includes a large section of poor white community, but it also includes the wealthy white community. And it's, it's more of a rural urban divide than it is a class divide when it comes to white people voting for or against Trump, which more or less boils down to like your exposure to people of other ethnicities. You know, if you're white people who are more exposed to people of other don't tend to vote for Trump and white people who aren't do like, that's probably like the actual divide, but he, you know, he focuses on the class thing right. here, but in it, he gets to this like core historical fact, which is like, this is why whiteness was created, right? Like this is this phenomenon of having white people vote against their class interests is or support support people against their class interests or, or 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 pick up guns and fight against their class interests in the case of the civil war is like why whiteness was created it was it was created it was largely created in the u.s you know some really great historians um like nell painter and um ibram kenny who tell this story you know about how there used to be a lot of solidarity amongst like the indentured servants of europe and the slaves of africa and they would plan escapes together um from the plantations and things like this and and that is one of the phenomenon that led to, to this kind of creation of the white race. It's like, okay, we're going to be this large group and distinct from the Africans. And so like he's, he's, you know, recalling that, that history or like he's getting at the core of the thing in this joke. And it's brilliant. Let me add one more layer because at the end when he talks about himself as a, as a millionaire, um, he's adding this extra layer of in the present day, in the 2000s, you have this rising class of black uh, celebrities, millionaires, middle class, upper middle class, uh, educated blacks whose 
interests are murky as well and are being sort of having to sort of navigate this new time. Um, I, I have to say it's it's interesting. Our, our episode two, Jesse, I, I happen to have a, a bunch of friends, bro, who at this point in my life are are themselves, you know, they've been educated in some of the country's best universities and they're skilled and upper middle class or even well off. And I have some friends, I got some phone calls, man, of people who really did not fuck with episode two of the Where Is Now podcast. You know, many people, they either consider themselves landlords or they are landlords or they consider themselves landlords to be in the near future. And yeah, I had a phone call too of, um, that were a little bit tense, a little bit fun, but just a disagreement. And I thought that I could win them over with a case for, for rent strike through recognizing that black people are disproportionately low income renters. I thought that would, you know, this is a, this is an argument that the argument of disproportionality is one that, um, is very powerful and honest and true. And it's something that we should be considering as we talk about, you know, policies and, and our systems. And in this moment on the phone, it didn't work. It was just like, they weren't interested in that. They are themselves, like I said, landlords, and they see themselves as members of that class. And, yo, people got to pay their rent because I'm only, I'm not a rich landlord. I'm just a landlord. And he's right. And I respect his opinion. At the same time, it's just an interesting observation. If I was a very famous and popular comedian, I might make a joke a bit about that somehow. But um, yeah, I mean, but I'm not. All I can say is interesting. That's something that you, you see in Dave's in humor uh, is is over the years, he's become more and more self-referential. Um, actually, in his Inside the Actors Studio interview back in 2006, you know, he talks about how he doesn't really like to talk in the first person, like, as himself, actually. You know, like, he talks in the first person as, like, a kind of made-up version of himself often in his early comedy. And then now it's, like, most of his comedy is, like, literally first person. And often it's, like, self-referential to the point where it's, like, about the response from his previous Netflix special, um, and it's it's very kind of focused on on his world now. And Wesley Morris uh, of the um, of the New York Times um, still processing podcast pointed out this question about Dave Chappelle's joke about the Flint uh, water situation. Um, I don't know if you remember this one where you know he talks about how he was invited. Refresh. He was supposed to go to this uh, fundraiser for Flint because of the the water situation there in in that community, which I'm not sure if it's mostly black, but it's definitely. Uh, part of the story of Flint water is that it's a, a large African-American community that doesn't have access to drinkable water. And so he's supposed to go to this fundraiser with a lot of other, I guess, uh, black celebrities. And then it, it's at the same night as the Oscars and and he gets a call from Chris Rock saying, I got an extra ticket for the Oscars. Do you want to come? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm already at the airport. Let's go. And and so he's talking about, you know, like, I'm not a Superman. I can't make the water drinkable in Flint. Like, what do you expect of me? Like, I've never been invited to the Oscars. You've seen the movies I make. You know, I'm, I'm not going to the Oscars other than like this way. You know, I want to go. And so Wesley Morris on, on New York Times was talking about how like 2003 Chappelle, if he's going to take on the Flint situation, is probably going to come up with a pretty clever way to point the finger at the problem and to, to mm -hmm. unravel the problem and help us understand the problem in a deeper way while also, you know, there being something silly, probably involving sex and children or something, you know, so it's like, it'll have those layers and it'll have like a bunch of weird things. And then now it's, it's about like, you know, how he wants to go to the Oscars. So there's this, this thing you're talking about is, you know, as you develop a, uh, the consciousness of your class, you know, he's, he's kind of like, in some ways gone from, I mean, he still has, he still is pointing out some of these 
interesting class fault lines and stuff, but there is other ways in which he's kind of become his class and defending the right of his sure. class to like go to the Oscars and, and, and let down this, the people who organize this fundraiser, I guess. For sure. Jon Stewart made a similar or told a similar story in the recent thing that showed him winning the Mark Twain Prize. That showed Dave Chappelle winning the Mark Twain Prize. And Jon Stewart said at one time uh, he was talking to Dave Chappelle about he's trying to get him to come to either a fundraiser or a rally or some event for the survivors, the the emergency responders to 9-11 to get them the medical services that they need, that they're unbelievably being denied. And the joke from Jon Stewart was that Dave Chappelle was like, uh, no, nah, I'm okay, <laughs> you know? And I love the honesty on that stage. You know, Jon Stewart levied a critique in that moment of Dave Chappelle and at the same time laughed with him and laughed with us and said, yo, um, the man is honest and clear-headed about what he wants to do. And in that moment, he didn't feel too much pressure to do what would be probably considered the the right thing, the right moral thing. He's like, yo, I'd rather do something but, else. But it's also, <laughs> and just kept it moving. It's all, he's also being like very much in line with his own critique of celebrity culture. I don't even know why people listen to me. <laughs> I'll say anything, nigga. I've done commercials for Coke and Pepsi. I don't give a fuck what comes out of my mouth. I just say what it takes. Whatever it takes, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you want to know the truth, can't even taste the difference. Surprise! <laughs> All I know was Pepsi paid me most recently, so tastes better. It's pretty much how the game goes. I'm just being real, man. It's too much goo-gog and over-celebrity. So, like, right. the fact that he is skeptical or not caring too much about these celebrity fundraisers and things like that is kind of in line with his own critique of, like, you guys shouldn't care. Like, you should support 9-11 first responders because of you believe in the cause, not because Dave Chappelle believes exactly. showed up on a stage, maybe even got paid to be on that stage. Yeah. And you actually see, like, there's this moment where he's on CNN with Ben Jealous, uh, who I guess he has a long-standing friendship with, but Ben was launching his campaign for, I think it was governor of Maryland, and, and Dave mm. Chappelle's, you know, in the interview with him, and he looks so uncomfortable, like, in a way that I've never seen Chappelle. Wait, Chappelle looks uncomfortable. So uncomfortable okay, because okay. He's, he's in the position, and you can see it, he's in this position of where he's, he's, his celebrity is being called on to help his friend get elected as governor. Stop worshiping celebrities so much. Just don't listen, pay attention. I remember right around September 11th, uh, Ja Rule was on MTV. That's what they said. They said, we got Ja Rule on the phone. Let's see what Ja's thoughts are on this tragedy. Who gives a fuck what Ja Rule thinks at a time like this? Like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to dance, I'm scared to death. I want some answers that Ja Rule might not have right now. You think when bad shit happens to me, I'll be in the crib like, oh my God, this is terrible. Could somebody please find Ja Rule, get hold of this motherfucker so I can make sense of all this. Where is Ja? God, meet Ja Rule. I mean, that's great, and he's right. He's right. I find it silly all the time. They trot out these celebrities uh, for the political campaigns and for endorsements for this and that. And I think at one point it was probably more powerful, but I think today everyone knows, right? Everyone knows that the guy is being paid. Anybody you see the, the, the young woman for the, whatever the ad is, they're being paid a large sum to say a script. Yeah. But, but we still follow it. Like, like, the, like the greatest... Yeah 
kind of like celebrities tricking people into doing something absurd and ridiculous example that we have of recent memory is the fire festival right and who was at the front of it was fucking ja rule like <laughs> it's like how like what are the chances that you know dave Chappelle? like that ja, that ja rule joke was so influential to me that like every time i I saw a celebrity playing this role. Where's Ja? Would like come into my head. Like Ja Rule became a joke in my head. Like his whole thing became a joke in my head related to this Dave Chappelle joke for every time I had a celebrity speaking about something that I have no reason to believe they know what they're talking about. And right. the fact that he picked, picked on Ja Rule was pretty prescient considering that 15 years later, Ja Rule would be at the front of one, such a scam. One of the other reasons I love Dave Chappelle is that I think he's a, a hip hop ambassador. Uh, of the highest order and of the best kind and I'm biased I have a an affinity for 90s hip-hop mm. and he did the block party I was a, a senior in college at that time and what an amazing event when you say ambassador for hip-hop though what do you what do you mean by that I mean that he connects hip-hop to his art one of the things I noticed with the Chappelle show is instead of having someone come into the studio in the show and perform he would meet them in their studio mm. he would go to wherever they were and be in the studio and just like bugging out. Wu-Tang is, is, is spitting some stuff and he's in the studio being silly. First episode of Chappelle Show, the first time you're ever watching the Chappelle Show, how does it start? It's the beat from hip hop from Dead Prez. And it's like, yeah. Like talk about a song that represented for me my favorite musical genre and that political kind of explosion of consciousness that hip hop gave me that like Dead Prez and Most Def uh, and Talib Kweli who he gets involved many times in his career Most Def as an actor oh. many times playing some you right. know pretty classic character in the in the Black Bush skit for example when I try to tell my own story of my own how I learned about certain things or like how I became conscious of certain dynamics that make the world that we live in. Chappelle's comedy and the hip hop of that era are like very much mixed in, in, in my head. Yeah, and that's deliberate. I think that's a choice he made. And he said, look, I have a, I love this stuff and, and I'm just gonna roll with it. I, I just, I see a man who's frequently being himself. And I think we, I think we all have an intuitive uh, attraction to that. Let's, let's talk about some of his more controversial stuff. The jokes towards the LGBTQ community or specifically the transgender community. Mm -hmm. Here's the challenge. Whenever we talk about this issue and this issue in particular, I wanna make sure that I'm articulate in this moment and then I can be understood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's important to start the conversation with an understanding that there are two values in conflict on the question of comics being offensive and the two values have to do with the freedom of speech and then also the freedom and the right to feel included and respected. And I think those are two important values. And I think we have to start there. So one of the last things I wanted, like if someone is really certain about the concept of like free speech always, like I don't value that. Mm -hmm. And then the other idea that we should restrict free speech when someone is bothered by it. I'm not fully there either. I think we need to just kind of crystallize what the problem is. In my view, the issue has to do with powerful platforms and media. 
And so the issue, for instance, with like 1950s Hollywood, you're dealing with like an exclusive club of storytellers who are pumping the eyes, the ears, and the minds of millions of people with a narrow set of stories, right? Because they're all generally like sort of white people with, with access. Mm-hmm. And so as a black dude from Brooklyn, those storytellers, they don't care about me and my story. They don't know how to tell my story. Yeah. They couldn't do it. Even if they tried, they, would, they could only produce a very base, warped version of me. And the problem is that they're robbing me of my opportunity to introduce myself to the world. They, they can't articulate my uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And so they're stuck with this caricature. And so if that's the problem, if you agree with me that that's the problem, I think, I think the way to fix that and the right argument for fixing that is to include more voices. And that's something we've been hearing so much. And that's part of the like Oscars so white movement and all this stuff. I think the goal is to expand speech as wide as possible, not to constrict it. I think that the internet gives us a ghost of a chance to achieve that. A ghost of a chance, because we haven't, we haven't achieved it. The idea, the hope is that the jokes and the films and the ideas can stand side by side. And it can be like, yo, I'm funny too. I have a funny take on that same idea, but from my angle. So I can notice irony and drama. I can tell that story. And so in the, you know, while Hollywood has their 1920s story of America from like the perspective of Howard Hughes, right? The aviator with the planes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I can say, yo, I could talk about 1920s America, but it wasn't roaring for everybody. Yeah. You know, that decade wasn't, wasn't just that so simple. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I don't know the person, but I think there's a comic out there who is currently a butt of one of Dave Chappelle's jokes. Um, but they're also very funny and they're refining their craft the way that Dave Chappelle has. And they're speaking honestly the way that Dave Chappelle does. And they're poking fun at themselves and poking fun at cisgender culture and shit, right? Mm-hmm. Which is fertile ground. They're poking fun at like the dumb shit that men do and masculinity and the rest of it. And it's weird sometimes. And perhaps it would be like a little off-putting for, for, for me or us maybe. Um, but the goal is to get that person access to all the mics and the stages and if they're funny their narrative will find the audience and we'll all be enriched by that additional story and that additional perspective and that additional humor i hope i've described that well but my instinct is to try and elevate more voices i'm I'm always very wary of efforts that are constricting and sort of punitive in nature and I, i think more voices are are being heard all the time we we're seeing it happen and we just need to kind of propel that and make that happen more quickly. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think Dave Chappelle a bit disingenuously appeals to that free speech argument. The concept of free speech is inseparable from power, right? So it's when somebody with power, typically the government, um, but it could also be a major corporation or whatever, is censoring you or is somehow not allowing you to say your truth. And so when he says something like rule number one of Hollywood, or I forget how he phrases it, you know, he's like, you're never allowed to upset the alphabet people. And he gets into this alphabet, the alphabet people being the LGBTQ movement. Well, dude, it's like, this is your fifth Netflix special, the biggest platform on earth in which you're talking about the, what you call the alphabet people getting paid $20 million a show from what I can tell. That doesn't sound like a free speech issue. Where does it come from? It comes from what I, what, what I think is, is worth talking about, which is kind of the response of when somebody says something that, that you believe is um, harmful, is uh, discriminatory, uh, is to label them that thing. Instead of talking about the thing they said, it's to say that person is that thing, is transphobic or whatever. And they have a good argument. The idea of he needs to be gone 
this guy can never be seen again. He needs to be erased from the face of the earth because of these jokes that he's made. Um, like that approach makes it feel like a free speech issue, but I still feel it's not there at all because the, the money and the Netflix exposure and all that stuff shows that Dave Chappelle is not the victim of a free speech attack, you know, of an attack on free speech. Like the people who feel under attack by his comedy, I could totally see that. Hate speech is illegal, right? Like you're not allowed to say this group of people is like this. And so we should attack them or like they should not have access to clean drinking water or whatever the hell it is. You know, it's like you, you can't legally do that because we understand that there's a connection between me saying those words, especially if I'm somebody of influence and then harm coming as a result of it. Right. Directly. So what people are saying here is that his comedy when it comes to women in many ways when it comes to the lgbt community in many ways it's not as nuanced as his stuff around race it's pretty one-sided and it propels and perpetuates a lot of kind of dangerous stereotypes if you look at kind of the statistics that show that you know trans people for example are more likely to be the victims of violence and they are targeted for hate crimes people can make a connection with like real events here and the fact that you know, he kind of proudly goes out and says like, I'm not listening to you. I am like proudly not listening to you when I think he showed great courage, almost like Muhammad Ali level courage, turning down $50 million when he felt like his ethics were under question in terms of like the influence he was having in the world. And it is sad for me to see him not taking that to heart. Like I'll give, like I'll give an example. You know, he always does, this, he, he'll set up, he'll, he'll wax virtuous, and but he's setting you up for a punchline, right? So He'll, he'll come and mm-hmm. says, your personal choices, I forget exactly what he says, something like that. Your personal choices do not disqualify you from a life of dignity, happiness, and safety. You know, and then he'll get like a, a little applause. And then, but, and then a little bit later, he's talking about how Caitlyn Jenner uh, in Sports Illustrated. I had read in the paper that Caitlyn Jenner was contemplating posing nude in an upcoming issue of Sports Illustrated. And I know... It's not politically correct to say these things, so I just figured, fuck it, I'll say it for everybody else. Yuck. You know, it's like part of dignity and happiness for many people is like the idea that they could be attractive to somebody. You know, they could be sexually attractive. So the idea that just, just the idea that a trans person is gonna be in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition is, and then he says, I'll say what we're all thinking. Yuck. He gets really frustrated when people make analogies sure. to race. But I think this one you could mm. like, you know, 1974, Beverly Anderson is the first black woman to be on the cover of Vogue. Mm. Right. And you can imagine that if like Bob Hope or some comedian back then was to like, I'm just going to say what we're all saying, what we're all thinking here. Yuck. Obviously, obviously that it's would common. be horrible. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I feel, I feel like that is a direct analogy to say that like this group can't be that. sexy is an attack on their dignity. For sure. One of the great comedians that Chappelle, and I don't know if he learned this from him, and I'm sure other comedians did it as well, but for me, in my understanding of the history of comedy, like, is George Carlin. Um, in terms of doing this mix of like making really, really strong social commentary, along with like fart jokes and sex jokes and having all those layers. But then also this thing I want to show in this clip is being that voice, representing that worst voice that we have in our heads, putting it out there for us to laugh at. I watch television news for one thing and one thing only, entertainment. That's all I want from the news, entertainment. You know my favorite thing on television? Bad news. Bad news and disasters and accidents and catastrophes. I want to see some explosions and fires. I want to see shit blowing up and bodies flying around. I'm not interested in the budget. I don't care about tax negotiations. I don't want to know what country the fucking Pope is in. 
But you show me a hospital that's on fire and people on crutches are jumping off the roof and I'm a happy guy! I'm a happy guy! I'm a happy guy! I want to see a paint factory blowing up. I want to see an oil refinery explode. I want to see a tornado hit a church on Sunday. Hey, at least I admit it. At least I admit it. Most people won't admit to those feelings. Most people see something like that on television and say, Oh, isn't that awful? Isn't that too bad? <laughs> Lying asshole. Lying assholes. You love it and you know it. Explosions are fun. And hey, the closer the explosion is to your house, the more fun it is. Do you ever notice that? Sometimes you have the TV on and you're working around the house. Some guy comes on television and says, 6,000 people were killed in an explosion today. You say, where, where? He says, in Pakistan. You say, oh, fuck Pakistan. So far away to be any fun. Yeah, so this is one of the forms George Carlin often takes in his comedies is going on these long rants where he's kind of representing the worst of his society, you know, and, and some of these like dark sides of us. And, and, it's, and it's funny to see somebody talking about it because you're just like, damn, fuck, it's unfortunate, but it's true, you know? And, and this is... This gets into some of the, the tension that you see with, with Chappelle. He says some devastating shit. Like, if you're a rape survivor, a Dave Chappelle mm. sh show, I mean, I, 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 mm. I can't speak for rape survivors. Um, I have a few, the in, Michael my, Jackson, I have a few in my the life. Michael Jackson. The Michael Jackson stuff, mm. the Bill Cosby stuff, the OJ stuff. There is so much violence against women called on in a Dave Chappelle show. I mean, there's like pussies getting kicked and punched there's like an interview with a beat up pussy and there's a superhero who activates his powers by raping people which then comes back with the cosby right. thing yeah. right like one of the you know the things that he does that, that a lot of great comedians do is they seed things early in the set and then they come back to them and they they become funny in and of their own how they keeps coming back to them and so you know but one of them is like the four times i met oj you know and three of the mm -hmm. times are like after the murder and like the only time he's in those stories that he like, if I remember correctly, that he's kind of disrespectful to OJ is like when OJ suggests that he and Chris Tucker take a photo with him, which felt like, nah, it's like, and it is fine. I mean, of course you're not like, you know, I don't know. I'm not taking a photo with OJ. But like on other than that, it's like, yeah, really nice guy and blah, blah, blah. And he talks about how important Cosby was to him. And all this stuff is true. And it's very important, I think, to hear that stuff. But when you add it all up, it's... Um, it comes to almost be an obsession, the violence against women and like the, the, the amount of role it fills in terms of like the degree to which he's, he represents this horrible voice in our head. Aziz Ansari did a better job of it, I think. For example, like when he went to the audience and said, you know, how many kids does Michael Jackson have to molest for you to stop listening to him? Yeah, the, uh, the Aziz question is interesting. He's kind of going right at the audience to say, think about who you think you are and your values and how it's being played out in your choices. And he's purposefully making you squirm. I think it's in the same category um and what mm -hmm. you're describing with Chappelle, i see what you're saying and it's something to consider i wonder if there's someone in his camp that is able to articulate some of this if he was listening to this podcast <laughs> how do you think he would respond to what you just said there i have no idea i don't my mind's not as thing. brilliant as dave Chappelle. i have no idea how he would respond but i what i want people to kind of like take from that point is that when people bring this shit up or people say, I don't like Dave Chappelle because of this and this and the other thing, to, to, to say like, oh, you're against free speech or like, it's just a joke or whatever. I think that's just inconsiderate. Like, I don't think people should try to take Dave Chappelle away from those of us who really enjoy 60%, 70% of his comedy and like, it makes us die laughing. Um, like, I don't think like we should have to feel horrible people for doing that. And I don't think other people should have to feel that they're like against free speech or something 
for saying that like they don't think he should have this big of a platform or they don't think that he's funny or whatever their opinion might be. You know, the George Carlin clip, you know, is it obviously it's just a clip. You know, Mm -hmm. does he go back and then humanize the the Pakistani, you know, the people who had that, you know, um, Lenny Bruce before him is a big comedian who had to go on trial for free speech for the for the yeah. things that he was saying. None of this is happening uh, without just Lenny like Bruce. curse words. Curse words, you know? Yeah. There's something about risk that makes performance interesting to begin with and much much not just comedy. Like for example, to, if two people give the exact same speech with the exact same voice but one of them's reading and the other one's not reading, the one who's not reading is just inherently more interesting. Because we all understand that there, there's a risk here, that they're going to forget something, that whatever. That risk makes it, makes it interesting, you know? In the same way that these comedians take risks. And I, and I think it's, but I think it's interesting to see how and where they decide to take these risks. And so, for example, like, Chappelle takes a huge risk in one of his stand-ups when he says, you know, he's super cocky in that one stand-up. And, and he's like, I'm so good at this now. I just, like, come up with punchlines first. And I put them in a in a fishbowl and I like go by and grab them. And so like the punchline yeah. could have been anything. like, if he wants to show how great he is, like the punchline, according to his theory, like could be absolutely anything, but what's the one that he chose? It was like, and then I kicked her in the pussy, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, that's the mm-hmm. one he chose. Right. And then he goes like, and I'm going to make that funny. And it's like, well, that's a, that's interesting that like it, in this, this, this game that you've set up for yourself, that like, this is the thing, like of all the phrases yeah. you could have chose, like this is the one you chose. Whereas that's you take a, a look, you yeah. take a look at, I like another comedian. So another comedian who who took a, a, a perhaps even crazier risk in a recent stand-up was Aziz Ansari. Saw this with this whole pizza hut thing, right? Guy orders a pepperoni pizza. He gets the pizza. The pepperonis are arranged to look like a swastika. But now some people online are saying it doesn't look like a swastika. They're saying it looks like a regular pizza. So the internet is split. I saw it kind of look like a regular pizza to me. I don't know. What do you guys think? Clap if you think it's a swastika. Clap if you think it looks like a swastika. Okay, a couple people in the back. Now clap if you think it just looks like a regular pizza. Yeah. So you, sir, right here, you, you think it looks like a regular pizza? Yeah? And, and, and what do you think, this guy's just lying to get attention or something like that? Yeah. And do you remember where you saw it? Because uh, it was in New York Times and Washington Post, but Washington Post supposedly accidentally posted a digitally altered photo. Do you remember where you saw it? You saw Washington Post? Okay. Well, you know what's interesting is um, I just made all that up. None of it happened. I'm not trying to embarrass you, dude, but you and everyone that clapped earlier, you're the fucking problem, okay? What are you doing? This is where we're at now. You think your opinion's so valuable, you need to chime in on shit that doesn't even exist? <laughs> I didn't know about that one. Yeah, nice, like okay. this, like, and that was like an incredible, like taking an incredible risk in a live performance, mm. you know, just confiding in what you have been told about human psychology and, and that this is going to work and, and it worked and it worked and you know he chose to you know use as his example you know racism nazism or whatever and Chappelle, in a similar kind of joke where he's he's creating a game basically you know went with and then i kicked her in the pussy so like all all, all yeah. you know what i'm saying like i 
Yeah, I yeah. totally understand people's, especially given how important he was to like our generation as a voice of conscience uh, during informative years for us to see him making these choices. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I, I understand people's disappointment. That totally makes sense. And I agree. And I would hope that we can continue to see an evolution of Dave Chappelle. He's, he's still young. He's still young. Um, he's certainly at the height of his career. I think his potential to stay at the height will, to a degree, rest on his ability to evolve and make the choices that you're talking about. And he is a good friend with Aziz Ansari. I wonder what those conversations are like. It'd be interesting. But I'd love to see a continued evolution of Dave Chappelle, for sure. Man, there's one thing well, can we for just- sure. Like, the actual gift of comedy, I mean, this guy, pace, timing, layering. Um, Dope. You could study Dope. You could study him. He's good. For sure. For sure. A new generation of comics born out of, like, all these, these new movements um, that are giving voice to uh, groups that just 15 years ago, 10 years ago, just weren't, that were marginalized. And so these, these guys are, there's a, there's a new sensibility generally in our culture and the comedy will reflect that and i think those those guys are those guys and girls are younger those people are younger and uh they're coming up and i'm excited about that too for sure mm-hmm. all right man so, <laughs> bro is that it did we do it i think I, we definitely did something you did a great job those were some great clips i love the music oh wait is that what i hear <laughs> yeah yeah until next time bro much love Oh,